I'm going to preach a message today that I think puts into terms, as well as I know how, what it means to make our lives count for all eternity. You know, I told you the story last week of the farmer that I ran into when we were in central Indiana, a place called Flora, Indiana, if you've ever been there. And I ran into this guy named Jeff Wise, a wonderful, wonderful Christian, a farmer up there. And he said, Dan, I want you to know that I listen to you and Paul every day. He said, when I'm out here in my farm truck or when I'm farming or whatever I'm doing, he said, I can't wait till the time when you guys are on and I turn on the radio and I just want you to know what a blessing your church, not just you and Paul, but your church is to us. And guys, that would not be possible if it were not for the team effort here. But, but it reminded me of the truth that our lives can and should count for all eternity for the good. Now, we're going to count. The question is, will we count for good or for bad? So I want to preach this message entitled, Living Life Backwards from Here. Here where? Well, this artwork ought to let you in. Living life backwards from here. Now, what on, on, on earth do I mean by that? Well, an author by the name of Larry Morier wrote this, and I thought it was so appropriate that I wanted you to hear it. He said, decide now what you want written on your tombstone. Then live your life backward from there. If at the end of your life you want to say, I did instead of I wish, alter your course today. Now, I got to tell you, I think that he's completely right. And it's in a really unique way of looking at life. Because he says, if you want people to not have to lie at your memorial service, you need to make sure that you're living today so they'll know what to say when they're standing in front of a crowd or when someone is chiseling into your tombstone some epitaph Make certain that you've lived in such a way that'll be easy to know what they ought to write. And that they will write what you would want them to write. So here's a question. Are you living in such a way right now that you know that people would say what you would want them to say if you died? See, one of the things that I've realized is that you can't ever really live life until you've dealt with death. And I've discovered that fishers don't live forever. This is a tombstone in Van Buren, Arkansas. And as you can see across the top of it, it's Fisher. The gentleman to the left is Guilford Fisher and then Ethel Trotter. Those are my grandparents. My grandfather Guilford was called Gip. I don't know exactly how they got that out of Guilford, but he was Gip. We called him Granddad. And notice that he died in 1969. It's, a, it's, a, it's a, a testimony to me that fishers don't live forever. Just a few, few feet away in that same cemetery from that tombstone is another one. It's a little harder to read in this photograph, but if you'll notice to the left, it says Gary L. That's Gary Lynn. That's my dad. That's Gary Fisher. He died in 1980. He died at the age of 45. That's another testimony to me that fishers don't live forever. And so if I want the right epitaph, if I want people to say the right things at my memorial service, if I want eternity to reflect the right things about my life, 
I better decide what those things are and then live backwards from there. And live in such a way as when I do die, they'll say what I would have wanted them to say. Now, you may know the story of a Swedish chemist by the name of Alfred Nobel. But in case you don't, it's an incredible story. His brother died, but unfortunately the local newspaper thought it was Alfred. So they printed Alfred's obituary in the paper the next day. Well, you can imagine the shock when he opened up the newspaper to read about his own death. And here's what they wrote about him. They said, Alfred Nobel, the inventor of dynamite, who died yesterday, April the 12th, 1888, devised a way for more people to be killed in a war than ever before, and he died a very rich man. That's the actual obituary that they wrote. Now, has Alfred Nobel read that, he thought, is that what I want to be known for? I mean, obviously he had to get over the shock of reading his premature death, but once he got past that, he thought, is this what people would be saying about me today if I had died yesterday? All they would remember about me is that I invented dynamite, which created a chemical that could make stronger and stronger bombs. And what I'm really responsible for is helping men to kill more men. Is that what I want my testimony to be? Well, he said the answer is no. And so he decided to start to live his life differently. Today, there is a peace prize named after him. It's the Nobel Peace Prize. It's been a little bit bastardized over the last few years as people have received the award that I don't believe had earned it. But historically, it has been a coveted award given to individuals who had given their lives for the betterment of their fellow man. It all came out of Alfred Nobel reading his premature obituary and found out that what people would have been saying about him had he really died is not what he wanted them to say. In fact, he went on to write this. He said, every man ought to have the chance to correct his epitaph in midstream and write a new one. (laughs) It's exactly what he got to do. He's one of the few people in life that was forced to consider what would be written on his tombstone. And he actually had the opportunity then, because when he read what they would write, he didn't like what he read. And he had the opportunity to rewrite his reputation. So here's my question to you. None of us are guaranteed another minute. But let's just say for a moment that you knew that you only had one year left to live. Now, some of us in this room right now, including me, may not even have a full year. But let's just say for a moment, for the sake of illustration, that you knew that you had one full year left to live, but that was it. Would that change the way you've been living? Now, I don't mean necessarily that all you've been doing was evil things and you're just a wicked person. Maybe that's true for some. But would it change the way you live even if you're a believer? Would it put a sense of priority on your life and would cause you to sit down and do an inventory and decide what are you going to do 
with this last little sliver of time that you have left. As I said, some of us may not even have a year. We have no idea. But if you knew you had a year, what changes would that create? The famous writer Thomas Carlyle once said this, Life is a little gleam of time between two eternities. I want you to think about that. That's your life. The most precious thing that you have is your life. And Carlisle's right. Your life is a little gleam of time between two eternities. Eternity before you existed and eternity as you exist. Now we know that eternity is unbroken. it's, It's a continual line. But for us, it's time before us. And then because God made us in His image, we are immortal. The only question is, where will we spend our immortality, heaven or hell, eternity after? And Carlisle's right. Our lives are just a little sliver, just a little gleam of time sandwiched between two eternities. You say, well, Dan, are you just wanting to make me depressed? I mean, is is your job today to just drag me down so that I'll go crawling out of here and thinking, my gosh, I'm glad that's over. No, the Bible says this is the way to actually live a meaningful life when we come to this realization. So let me give you the proof of it. In Psalm 39, verse 4, listen to what the psalmist said, Lord, make me to know my end and what is the measure of my days that I may know how frail I am. And then add to it Psalm 90 verse 12. So teach us to number our days. Why? That we may gain a heart of wisdom. Now I want you to listen to what God's Word is saying. God's Word is saying that if I want to be a wise individual, if I want to learn how to make the most out of life, that's what wisdom is, to make the most out of life, which would be to live a life that's honoring to God, anything less than that is not the most out of life, then the way to do that is to find that tombstone in your mind, decide what you want written on it, and live backwards that way. That's how you gain a heart of wisdom, to know that your days are not long, to count those days, to measure. And that doesn't just mean to count the seconds. That means to measure as far as what are they worth? What am I going to apply myself to? What am I going to focus on? So out of this then comes three thoughts to me that I am pretty convinced will occur to you as well. Thought number one, according to God's word, my life is short. My life is short. I will turn 62 on the 26th of August. 62. Now I know we always laugh when we say something like this, but you know, I remember when I thought 62 was ancient. I remember when I thought people that are 62 ought to just roll up in a ball and die because their lives are finished. There's nothing left for them. Now I realize just how full of life and strength and brilliance a 62-year-old is. But I didn't used to think that. I'll be 62. Now, doing some quick math, if I live to the age of 80, and you know most people don't, most people do not see their 80th birthday. 
But if I live to the age of 80, that's 18 years from now. That is not very long. That used to seem like a long time. I mean, you know, 10 years from the time I was 6 until I was 16 and I had a driver's license, that seemed like an eternity. Or when I was waiting for Christmas, maybe it was two months out, that seemed like an eternity. And yet it was so amazing to me how long three months took to get to Christmas and how quickly three months passed from May to the end of August to go back to school. It's just a kind of weird deal, isn't it? But I'm just 18 years away from my 80th birthday. And I may never see 80. My life is short. Now God's word is filled with reminders of that fact. Listen to Job 14 verses 1 and 2. Man who is born of woman is a few days, notice, few days and full of trouble. He comes forth like a flower, fades away. He flees like a shadow and does not continue. Now, obviously, what he's talking about there is the physical side of life. Our soulish, spiritual part of life will live forever. We're immortal. The only reason our bodies die is because of Adam's sin. And there's going to be a resurrection someday. But it isn't just the believers who are resurrected. Jesus says that there's a resurrection for the lost. Their soul and spirit will be placed back into a resurrected body and they're going to stand at the judgment in that resurrected body and then be thrown into the lake of fire in that resurrected body. It's really kind of crazy when you think about it. But notice what Job is saying is right. My life at its longest is short. You're familiar with this passage of Scripture. James chapter 4 verse 14. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then it vanishes away. This morning as we were leaving out, coming this way, there's a little uh, uh, low area on the road that we were driving through, trees on both sides, and there was this mist right across the road. But I guarantee you when we go back there, it'll be gone. He said, your life is like that. Listen to what Isaiah said way back over 500 years before Jesus was born. We all fade as a leaf and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. Paul told the Christians at a place called Corinth, But this I say, brothers, the time is short, for the form of this world is passing away. Boy, if there is anything that life has taught me, it's that life is short. I mean, it just flies by. And those of you who are my age or older, we've said to each other, I cannot believe how much faster time goes the older that you get. And it's kind of a dilemma. And I don't really understand it. I I don't know if, if it's a spiritual thing. I don't really know. But some have suggested that part of the reason may be, and the explanation could be, that when you're six, one year is one sixth of your entire existence. But when you're 60, one year is only one sixtieth of your entire existence. And the older we get, the more things we get involved in typically. The busier we are, the faster we go. It's not that time is actually moving faster. It's that we are. We're racing toward a destiny with God. An appointment that we have with Him. Now I remember when that picture was taken. I was three. It was taken in Mulberry, Arkansas. A photographer had come to town. And he set up in the gymnasium of the school 
And even though it was just three, I remember that day. And after my picture was taken, I climbed up to the top of, of the bleachers, and I remember I fell all the way down, and my mother came running up because I rolled out into the, the, the basketball court, and I wasn't moving, and my mother was screaming, He's dead! He's dead! Like that. I was okay. But I remember that day. You know, that time is just shot by. That was 59 years ago. For my parents who saw it from the outside looking in at me, it went even faster. This is Pam about the same age, my wife. Time just flies. This is the both of us when we were dating at Christmas time. I'm giving her a promise ring, which is step one to an engagement ring, right? And so I'm, I'm giving her a promise ring. That's back when she was young. <laughs> Look at that. We're just children. I remember that night like it was last night. Now, you could show the same kind of pictures of your life. Look at how fast they go. Is it just shot by? It's unbelievable how fast the time flies. We've been married 40 years. And I remember that Christmas giving her that ring. I think she gave me some stupid cheap deal of some sort. But, but anyway, I gave her this really nice... I'm going to get a beating, I'm telling you, just as sure as I'm shooting. This is our first son, Jacob. I remember the day that picture was made. This is our daughter, Rebecca. About the same age. I remember that day. I remember that. It's just like yesterday. I mean, it's just like yesterday. And now they have kids. There's four of them. The other two are too little. Uh, one of them wasn't here quite yet, and the other one's still too little. But there's the four that are up and running around. It was taken at Easter. They're, they're hunting Easter eggs. My gosh. I can't believe uh, Reese on the one side who we caught him in one of those really great looks that you always love for people to show pictures of you when you have that kind of look. But he's, he's working on seven, I believe. Oh, he's working on eight. I mean, see... You see how fast time goes? I remember the afternoon he was born. You could show the same pictures. If you're my age, you're running through in your mind right now. This is how fast life is. Life is short, my friends. You better decide what you want on that tombstone and start living life backwards. A great Christian by the name of Adniram Judson. He uh, took the gospel to the people in Burma. Terrible, terrible uh, ordeal that he went through in his life. Listen to what he said. A life once spent is irrevocable. It will remain to be contemplated through eternity. The same may be said of each day. When it is once passed, it is gone forever. All the marks which we put upon it, it will exhibit forever. Each day will not only be a witness of our conduct, but will affect our everlasting destiny. How shall we then wish to see each day marked with usefulness 
Let us then, each morning, enabled by God's Spirit, resolve to send the day into eternity in such a garb as we shall wish it to wear forever. Have you ever thought of sending a day into eternity? You do that 365 times a year. You are sending 365 days into eternity every year. I think this is a little of what Jesus meant when he said, don't put your treasure on the earth. Put your treasure in heaven. Send it on ahead. So he says, make sure that every day is dressed in such a way as you'd want to send it into eternity. And at night, let us reflect that one more day is irrevocably gone, indelibly marked. Have you ever thought about a day like that? Have you ever thought about your life like that? Here's another great Christian, David Brainerd. If you've ever read any about David Brainerd, he was one of the most committed Christians I've ever read anything about. He died in his 20s, but he didn't die of some you know, horrible illness as much as he just burned out for God. He was one of the, 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 the most brilliantly committed, sacrificial Christians I've ever read anything about. Now, take that into consideration when you hear what he says. Oh, how precious is time and how guilty it makes me feel when I think I have trifled away and misemployed it or neglected to fill up each part of it with duty to the utmost of my ability and capacity. If you read any about him, you can't believe how he's thinking he's wasting time but listen to what he says the last sentence oh that I might not loiter on my heavenly journey I want you to think about that last line loitering surely you've pulled up somewhere and there was a sign there said no loitering maybe we ought to put those up here in the church house here in the auditorium no loitering but have you ever thought of no loitering in life. You see, some people just live their lives just kind of milling around. Just kind of standing around. I don't mean they're not Christian. I don't mean they don't know the Lord. But they're just kind of milling around. They're kind of wasting time. So, my life is short. Second thought. My strength is small. Psalm 39.4 That I may know how frail... I am. I don't care how strong you are. I don't care how much you work out. I don't care how brave or courageous you are, friend. You are frail. The smallest little microbe can take you out. You and I are frail. We are hanging above eternity by a very thin string of physical life. Psalm 119 141, I am small and despised, the psalmist said, yet I do not forget your precepts. You say, Dan, are you trying again to drag us down? No, no, no. Thinking this way causes me to be able to make the most out of my life. When I understand that my life is short, so I better get busy, and I am weak. And therefore, I must have the sustaining power of God in my life. You see... Our problem is that too often we live by life's demands instead of by God's priorities. Now, there is a, a, 
It's a pamphlet now. It originally was an essay entitled The Tyranny of the Urgent that was written by this gentleman right here, Charles Hummel. I want to read to you just a little portion of this because his, his argument was that most of us allow the urgent things in life to demand our attention, causing us to miss the important things in life. You catch the difference? Urgent, important I want you to listen to what he said. If you've never read this, you need to get a copy of it and read the whole thing. Here's what he says. He says, the great danger is letting the urgent things crowd out the important. The need itself is not the call. Now, for a Christian, I want you to stop and I want you to think about that for just a moment. The need is not itself the call. How many of us think every time there's a need, it's our job to solve it? It isn't. You can't meet every need. Even in his physical body, Jesus did not meet every need. I guess he could have, but he did not. So notice he says, the need itself is not the call. We realize our dilemma goes deeper than a shortage of time. It is basically a problem of priorities. We confess we have left undone those things that ought to have been done, and we have done those things which we ought not to have done. The important task rarely must be done today or even this week. But the urgent task calls for instant action. The momentary appeal of these tasks seems irresistible and important. And they devour our energy. But in the light of time's perspective, remember, my life is short. Their deceptive prominence fades With a sense of loss, we recall the vital tasks we pushed aside. We realize we become slaves to the tyranny of the urgent. We live in a world that is so fast-paced. People making demands on us. This has got to be done. Here's the deadline on this. You got to do this. Haven't you done that? I I just texted you an hour ago. Why haven't you returned my call? All this kind of stuff, right? Right? I mean, cell phones are a wonderful thing. Email and all these other different kinds of uh, communication are wonderful, but they've made us incredibly rude and impatient. I mean, it's like somebody texts me in the morning, and if I haven't returned the text by noon, I'm somehow dissing them. I mean, we all, and we all tend to act like that. I mean, we may not say it, but we kind of think, well, I texted them a while ago. Why haven't they, they responded to me? Yeah. We have allowed our lives to become pushed by the urgencies and we're so distracted and so drained by those that we don't do the important things. Not to say that there's never an important thing that becomes urgent, but typically, think about your own life. The urgencies are not the really life-altering important things. It's not the stuff you want to be, have written on your tombstone. It's the important things. So remember that life is too short for us to do everything we want to do, but it is long enough for us to do everything God wants us to do. I want you to think on that for just a second. Your life is too short for you to do everything that you would like to do, but you have plenty of time to do what God calls you to do. I laugh sometimes when people say, well, I just don't have much time as these other people do. What? 
Well, I just don't have as much time as these other people do. They're always doing this, doing that. I don't have as much time as they do. Wait, you mean they have more seconds in their day than you do? They have more minutes in their day than you do? They have more hours than you do? Or maybe it's that they have prioritized their lives differently than you have. Maybe they've decided that there are some things just so important that I'm going to carve out time for those. I was just visiting with a family a while ago. And they said, we have made the difficult, but we believe sound decision to homeschool our children or at least to send them to a Christian school. My wife and I made that decision years ago. It was very costly for us. Incredibly expensive. My children, both my son and his wife, and then my daughter and her husband, are homeschooling their children. Now, I'm not saying that you have to homeschool or that you have to send your children to Christian school or whatever. I'm not saying that at all. But here's what I am saying. Don't be surprised if you send your children to government schools for 12 or 13 years and they come out Marxists. And they come out believing that life is an accident and rather than being a creation, it just happened over millions and millions and billions of years and they're nothing more than just kind of a piece or a link in an evolutionary chain that's going who knows where. And therefore, to life's most important questions, where did I come from, why am I here, and where am I going? Darwin says you came from nothing, you obviously have no reason for being here, and since you have no reason for being here, you are going nowhere. Now how does God answer that? God says you came from me, you're here to know me, and you're headed to be with me. Well, that changes everything. It's all a system of priorities And I'm frail. I'm weak. I have little strength. My strength is small. My time is short. One last thought. My heart, unfortunately, is sinful. Now, I'm a believer. I've known the Lord as my Savior since I was eight. Not that this necessarily makes me any better than anybody else, but I felt called to preach at the age of ten. I preached my first sermon when I was 16. I was full-time in the ministry at the age of 22. I was pastoring my first church full-time when I was 23, just turning 24. That's a pretty early start. But even though all of that is true, and even though I've always tried to incline my heart to the Lord, I am daily reminded of this horrible fact. My heart is desperately wicked. And it leans toward the things that I don't want it to lean toward. And it leans away from the things I want it to lean toward. And by remembering that, it causes me then to discipline myself. To remember, whoa, whoa, wait just a minute. My time is short. My strength is small. My heart is inclined to sin. And it causes me to be ready then to hear God whenever He wants me to step up and do whatever it is that He's calling me to do. Remember Psalm ninety twelve that we may gain a heart of wisdom. This is how we get there. We recognize who we are. See, we have a, a really, really bad problem within Christendom. It's the idea that the only people who repent 
are wicked sinners who are coming to know the Lord for the first time. And those people need to repent. The truth is, the Bible teaches that Christians need to repent. Remember, repentance is nothing more difficult than turning and going a different direction. You don't hear that much these days. You don't hear preachers tell believers they need to repent. I don't mean to be saved. I mean to save what God is trying to do in you. Remember, figure out what you want this tombstone to say and you live backwards. (laughs) All the way back to now. And if you don't, just like Alfred Nobel, you're going to wake up someday and read your own obituary and it ain't going to say what you wanted it to say. You're going to attend your memorial service and you're going to find out that if people are saying nice stuff about you, they're having to lie. You don't want that. Isaiah 64, 6. We read it a while ago. But he goes on to say in verse 6, but we are all like an unclean thing and all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. It's just a simple way of saying at your very best, you cannot please God. God must come into you and make you pleasing to Him. God, you got to help me. you got to help me. I, um, I've had the... The fortunate and unfortunate opportunity or responsibility over the years to preach a lot of memorial services or what we used to call funerals. You know, to preach the the service for a believer is not really all that tough. In fact, my mentor years ago, Dr. Bennett, told me, he said, Dan, funerals and weddings are some of the greatest opportunities for you to witness to people that you're ever going to get. Because typically at funerals and weddings, you have an audience filled with unsaved people. And so you need to learn how to delicately share the whole counsel of God without looking like you're trying to take advantage of the situation. (laughs) He was so right. And so over the years, and you can ask my wife this, I have worked very hard at funeral and wedding sermons. Obviously, wedding sermons are much, much shorter, but I've worked very hard at those. But when you preach the funeral of someone that you're pretty sure did not know the Lord, whoa. You can't believe how difficult that is. I mean, it's really difficult to preach the funeral of someone you didn't know. From time to time, I've been asked to preach the funeral for someone who didn't have a pastor. Of course, when you ask the family, you're trying to gather information about this person, they're always a Christian. I mean, they never went to church, but they really loved God. I mean, we just, he just loved God. Yeah, that's like he liked Reese's cups, but never ate them right and hated peanut butter. I mean, come on. So you try to preach a sermon for someone that you've never met. That's, but to preach a sermon for someone that you're pretty sure is in hell, boy. Now, I'm not God. I can't judge But let me tell you one story. I watched my dad and a group of other men in a little church that we attended on the south side of Fort Smith, Arkansas one night, witness to this old guy for over an hour. He had been attending our church. He was not a believer. And I watched that man as he literally trembled. I mean, he trembled. The conviction of God was so strong on this man, he trembled. And I thought, boy, just any moment, he's going to break and give his heart to the Lord. And he's going to have a glorious rebirth experience. And he's going to be welcomed into the family of God. And this is going to be a wonderful deal. He never did. They tried for an hour or longer. And this man wanted to hear. It wasn't like they were forcing him. 
And finally at the end, he just said, I am not ready to do that right now. Well, sadly, it wasn't that many months later that man died. And to my knowledge, he never gave his life to Jesus, ever. I was asked to do his funeral, just a young preacher. I hadn't done many funerals at that time in my life. And this one was the funeral of a guy that I'm pretty sure is in hell. Now I'm telling you, that is hard to do. The funeral itself was not that bad because you, know, you just get up at the podium and you preach what you know is biblically correct. You try to honor the, the, the deceased as best you can and their family. I mean, it was a terrible deal and everybody was just wailing and, and that was all. But that was nothing. That paled to the cemetery. Oh my gosh. This guy was a veteran and we went out to the military cemetery there in old Fort Smith, Arkansas. I've never in my life, I mean, normally at funerals, you hang around after the graveside, you know, and you, you, you visit with family that you haven't seen in a, in a long time. You visit with friends, and especially if it's the funeral of a believer. You're just all family anyway, and you've grieved, and this person now is in heaven, and you're going to see them someday, and so why not fellowship? I've never wanted to get away from a cemetery faster in my life. I have never seen people weep and wail like these people were. And they had reason to do it. They were clinging to this casket. I, I, they were hanging on to the casket. I've never, in all my days, I've never seen anything like this. It was the darkest moment I think I have ever experienced. I just could barely breathe. I did my responsibilities there at the cemetery, did a few, you know, gobbledygook, zigzag-zigzag-zook kind of deals. And then I'm telling you, I was 98 and out the gate. I was out of there just as quick as I could go. It was the most terrible thing I've, I've ever seen in all of my life. And I, uh, I stood there and I, and I thought to myself, what a sad end. Now, I'm not God. I don't, want, I don't even want to play God. Maybe that guy right at his last moments gave his life to Christ, but I think he probably didn't. And I thought, what a sad thing. This man is in hell. And there's nothing you can do about it. He's lost forever. No wonder they were wailing and moaning. I'm telling you, friends, life is short. Better get it right. Two things and we're done. Romans 13, verses 11 through 14. And do this, Paul says, knowing the time that now... It is high time to awake out of sleep. For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. Therefore let us cast off the works of darkness. Let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day. Not in revelry and drunkenness. Not in lewdness and lust. Not in strife and envy. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. He's talking to believers here. And make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. Time's up he says. Time's up. Well, I want to go back to that uh, tombstone that I showed you a while ago with that name Fisher on the top of it. I often heard Adrian Rogers use this quote, but I don't think it came from him. I don't know where this quote originates, but it is so right. It says, A time is coming for all men when they will either be born again or wish they had never been born at all. The time is coming for all men when they will either be born again or they will wish they had never been born at all. Wow. So true. Now for you, you're one of two people. 
You either have been born again, and so now you have the opportunity to make your life count, or you have not been born again, and you're quickly racing to a moment where if you do not change that, you will wish you had never been born ever. Well, we're going to have an invitation, and you have an opportunity to come and visit with a counselor who's going to be standing at either side, and you're going to have them to help you give your life to Christ so that your life is not a waste and you don't end up like that guy's funeral that I did over there in Fort Smith. But let me also say to you that if you're a believer and you are born again, are you living in such a way here that what's written on your tombstone would be what you'd want it to be? When they talk about you in your memorial service, will they have to lie to make it sound good? Boy, now's the time, isn't it? I mean, now's the time to get it right. I don't know how long I have. I don't know how long you have. None of us may have very long. But I can tell you this, no matter how long it is, it's short. And it goes, whew, and it's past. So a little poem that goes like this, a little verse of it says, Soon one's life will be past. Only the things done for Christ will last.